Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 15th of June, Tom O'Toole taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Tom looks at the doctrine of sanctification. Tom is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and also heads up the Broadcast Network, an online platform resourcing church planters across the world. Let's take a listen to the session. All right, the second part of our time together then is where we look at a theological topic. And today the topic is sanctification. So some of you may be familiar with that word. It may be a new word to some of you. Here's a definition of sanctification from Wayne Grudem. It says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And then J.I. Packer says the concept is not of sin being totally eradicated, that is to claim too much, or merely counteracted, that is to say too little, but of a divinely wrought character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions and virtues. The idea is you become a Christian here, you die or Jesus comes back here, but there's a road in between them. And that road is a road on which you will grow and you will change and become more and more like Jesus over the course of your life. Sanctification is talking about that process of that happening. So I have a question for you to start with on your tables. Um, Firstly, Just try and reflect on over your Christian life, so since the day you became a Christian, what has changed in you? So not like I moved house or I got a new job, but actually in you, in your character, what has changed? And then see if you can try and unpick how those changes came about, what was involved in seeing those changes happen. So take a couple of minutes, what has changed? And then see if you can start to unpick how the change happened. All right, let's bring that together now. Am I right in thinking that everybody can identify something that has changed in their life since becoming a Christian? Good. Am I right in thinking it's a bit harder to try and unpick how that happened? It's not always clear-cut exactly what factors bring about the change, but the change happens on our journey with Jesus. That's sanctification. Sanctification, first thing to say, is it's distinct from justification. So justification, you're probably hearing about this last time, but this is when we first become a Christian. Sanctification is the ongoing thing. So justification is about our legal standing before God. We are made right before God when we become a Christian. Yet our internal condition isn't fully made right. So our legal standing is... But internally, there are still all sorts of kind of mixture of things to deal with. Justification happens once for all time. But sanctification is continuous. You are being sanctified yesterday. You're being sanctified today. You will be sanctified more tomorrow. 
Justification is entirely God's work. He does it once for all. Sanctification, God is still involved, but we have a part to play as well. We cooperate with God in the process. Justification is perfect. Once Jesus has died for you, that is perfectly accomplished. Sanctification, it will never be perfect in this life. It will be progressive. It will keep on going further and further. But not until new creation glory will it be perfected. Justification is the same in all Christians. So if Jesus has died for each of us, that is the same. That blood covers all of us equally. Sanctification is greater in some than in others. Some people are more mature in the faith than other people are. So justification and sanctification are very different. We run into problems when we either confuse them with each other. So when we think, oh, it's by what I do, by the change that's happening in me that I'm made right by God, that's problematic. It's also problematic if we uh, start to think, oh, because Jesus died and his blood's over me, then oh, my, my internal character must be sorted. That would be wrong as well. Years ago, there was this idea of having Jesus as your saviour, but not your Lord. You know, I read some old books, and that seemed like quite a, a big thing that people said, take Jesus as saviour, but if you really want to step it up, you need to take him as Lord as well. You can't divorce the two, okay? You can't just have the justification bit, oh, Jesus is my saviour, and then forget, oh, I'm going to have Jesus as Lord and live for him. The two go together. You also can't just have sanctification. So I don't know if you've ever been in churches where the majority of sermons are like, here are 10 steps for a happier marriage. Here are 10 ways to budget better. And we're always going on about how you change and how you grow and how you do better in this life. And never get round to telling people the gospel of Jesus. It's like you want the sanctification without the justification. Again, that's wrong. You need both, justification and sanctification. They're not the same, but they belong together in the Christian life. But today our focus is sanctification. First thing that we're going to talk about is that change is necessary. Okay? You need to change. I need to change. All of us do. Why do we need to change? Well, firstly, where we've come from, because we were dead in sin. Sin is what we lived in. Sin is what consumed us. And if you think about sin, why is it so bad? Remember, it was sin that drove Jesus all the way to the cross. If sin is so bad that Jesus, God the Son, had to die for it, and that is where we were, then you can surely say some change is needed. Change is also needed, because think of where we're going to. Think of the glory of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, perfect, resplendent in glory. That's where we are going. And then think about how we're created. We are made in the image of God. So we're made to reflect God's glory on the earth. And yet sin has tarnished it. The image has been broken. So we're living in this world of sin. We're made in God's image. We belong in the new creation glory. That's where we're going. Some change is needed. We need to grow. We need to start to reflect that more than that. We need to shine forth God's image again. Now, it's at this point that grace is a bit of a problem for us. Now, I bet you didn't think you'd hear that. Grace is a problem because imagine you were like a legalist. This would be so easy, okay? Imagine you were saying, you have to keep the rules before you can be saved. Then you don't have a problem with people being changed because the people have kept the rules before they've got saved. So, hey, you've only got perfect people in. 
Now, grace, because Christianity and the Bible teaches that our acceptance is unconditional, we don't need to keep the rules, we don't need to have met a standard before God will accept us, that means you get a whole bunch of people who are Christians who haven't met the standard. So you get a mess, you get a whole lot of broken, sinful people who God loves and who make up the church. But that's a bit of a problem because you've got lots of broken, messed up people. I mean, when we're looking at Corinthians, they were broken, messed up people, and yet Paul's love shone through for them. The same is true in our churches. They're full of broken, messed up people. Some of them are in this room today. But Paul raises the question in Romans 6 then. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because if, if grace gives glory to God, and if saving people who don't deserve it gives glory to God, then wouldn't it be a good idea to sin more so then God can forgive us more and God gets glorified more? And Paul says, no, that's ridiculous. What a silly idea. But, but to ask the question shows that you understand the scandal of grace, because grace is scandalous. So change is necessary. Second thing that I want to tell you is that change is possible. Change is possible. This is one of my bugbears amongst Christians. Okay? We're way too pessimistic about the possibility of God changing us. We can, we can live with things being not right and just assume that they will continue to be not right. We, we've got a mentality sometimes that accepts the status quo, that accepts the struggle of the moment as one that will never be won. Because we know we won't be perfect in glory, but what we, we, we won't be perfect until glory, I should say. But what we miss is the fact that between now and then, we can take some significant strides in our maturity. But this pessimism, we even have a Bible verse that we kind of um, go to as a way of justifying it, and it's Romans 7. Verses 19 and 20, the number of times that I've heard people refer to this verse. It says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Basically saying, well, there's things I want to do, but I'm never going to be able to do them. There's sin that dwells in me, so stuff it. Okay, that's kind of what some people will argue based on those verses. That, I think, is the elephant in the room for this whole topic of sanctification. We're going to put a pin in that big elephant. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. Just bear in mind that that verse is where a lot of the pessimism about change will come from. We'll return to it there. Let me just read Galatians 5. This is a different, um, different tack on the same subject. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's referring to these things as fruit. And what happens to fruit? It grows from a certain plant, from a certain root. Fruit is produced. Change is possible. Paul Tripp says this, he says, change is possible. You can stand amid the harshest realities of sin and have hope that will never disappoint you. That marriage can change. That teenager can change. That church can change. That friendship can change. That bitterness can be put to death. That compulsion can be broken. That fear can be defeated. That stony heart can be made soft and sweet words can come from a once acid tongue. Loving service can come from a person who was once totally self-absorbed. People can have power without being corrupt. Homes can become places of safety, love and healing. Change is possible because the King has come. Amen. So let's go into Romans then. I, I said that Romans 7 was a bit of an elephant in the room. Let's just look at Romans 6 for a few moments. Romans 6 verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's a picture here of people who used to be slaves to sin who are not slaves to sin anymore. Think about that. Right? We, we like to use the words free will. Anyone heard people talk about free will as though people are free to do whatever they want to do? The Bible doesn't talk about free will. Okay? The Bible says we are slaves to sin if we don't know God. That's not free, that's slavery. Okay? Sin has got us and we can't choose to not sin when we don't know God. Okay? It's got us, we are in its grip, it has dominion, it's a slave master over us. But it says here we, Christians, believers in Jesus, are no longer slaves to sin. It does not enslave us anymore. A change has come in that regard. Verses 7 and 8, it continues. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So now, what is our status? Are we a slave to sin? No, we're dead to it. It's gone, we're dead to it. As far as the east is from the west, it has been removed from us, and we are alive now to Jesus Christ. That's the status of a Christian. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lived to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves this way. I wonder how you think of yourself. I wonder what words you use to describe yourself. When you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as one who is dead to sin? We should think of ourselves that way. 
One of the most moving TV shows that I've ever seen is Roots. Has anyone watched Roots? It's an old series made years ago. Uh, it traces the family line uh, of a family who... Uh, the first guy was a guy called uh, Kunta Kinte, who was in Africa. He was taken on a slave ship to North America. It shows kind of how brutal... Um, well, the first episode is particularly about him. It shows how brutal the slave ships, the slave market, his captivity was. Uh, and there's one moment that it just gets me every time I see it. He's been beaten by the guy who's paid money for him. Uh, and this guy says, what is your name? And he, he says, my name is Kunta Kinte. Uh, and the guy says, no, it, it's not. And he beats him. He says, your name is Toby. Uh, and he, he says, what is your name? Uh, and he says, my name is Kunta Kinte. And the guy beats him and says, your name is Toby. And it happens again and again and again, and it's like he knows his identity. He knows who he is, and yet you've got this slave driver trying to convince him that his identity is something else. And the most heartbreaking moment is at the end of the episode when uh, the guy says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Toby. And he's believed an identity that this slave master has tried to impose upon him. Christians can do that. Have you ever heard a Christian describe themselves as a sinner. We're all sinners, we say. That's an identity word. If I put that label on myself, the, the Bible tells me not. So the Bible says, consider yourself. How do you think of yourself as dead to sin? That is my identity. Am I a sinner? No. Am I dead to sin? Yes. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that I never do anything wrong. But sinner isn't a badge I wear. It's not an identity title over me. And I would defy you to find anywhere in the Bible that the word sinner is used of a Christian in the present tense. Now, there are moments that are used in the past tense. I was this. I was a sinner, but not anymore. We have a new identity now. There are new names spoken over us. New words given to us. We saw it in the introduction to Corinthians. We are saints. That is who we are. We need to consider ourselves that way if we are to see change happen. And then, then verse 12 to 13, we have a part to play in this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Then verse 14 kind of summarizes this whole thing. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. The Bible tells us about three ways we can live our life. And two of them are mentioned in this verse. Okay? The one that isn't mentioned in this verse is we can live by the flesh. When we live by the flesh... We go with whatever desires we have, whatever our lusts, whatever things we want to do, we just run with it, okay? We, we just indulge ourselves and we live according to our desires. That is one way to live. Where does that lead? It leads to uh, debauchery, it leads to ungodliness, it leads to destruction. A lot of us, when we think of sin, we think about this idea of living by the flesh. But this verse, Romans 6, 14, talks about the other two ways that we can live. We can live under law. So we can live by the law, which is when we have a whole set of rules that we try and keep. A moral standard that if we can do X, Y, and Z, that will kill sin. That will stop us from living by the flesh, so we must be fine. But it then says we can live under grace. Or another way the Bible talks about the story is we can live by the Spirit, which is a third way. 
When Jesus ministered, often he was coming into a situation where you had some people who were living by the flesh, and they're referred to as sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. Their misdeeds were obvious, but people were trying to address it by the law. They were trying to put harsh standards on them, telling them, you know, book up your ideas, do this, do this, do this, and you will be okay. And Jesus saw that that was as destructive as living by the flesh was. Both were equally problematic. There's a story uh, that I love to tell from uh, the old Greek myths. There, were, there was an island and uh, there was some um, kind of bad creatures, let's call them, sirens. They were like demonic women. They looked beautiful, but it was kind of a, a mirage. And really they were just out to devour and destroy passing sailors. But the, but the look and the song that they sang, it was enticing. So ships diverted from their course to come to the island. Uh, and... You've got different kinds of sailors who would pass by. So there are some sailors who, they'd just see them, they'd hear the song, they'd see the beauty, and they'd say, I'm just going for this, I want to be on that island. And they were led to destruction. That's an illustration of living by the flesh. You've got another guy, though, who, he had a plan, basically what he wanted to do. He wanted to see them, and he wanted to hear their song. But he, he knew the danger, so he said, right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put wax in the ears of all of my uh, sailors so that they can't take the boat in a different direction. I know I'm likely to want to do it as well, so I'm going to get them to tie me to the mast with ropes so that I cannot wrestle control of the ship. Then I can hear their song, I can see them, but I won't be led astray. Now, what had happened to him? Because they, they got past the island okay. But in his heart, he was there. In his heart, he'd been captivated by them and captured by them, even if he'd not gone there in the flesh. That's an illustration of living by the law. We only don't do the thing that our heart wants to do because of these ropes and bounds that we've attached to ourselves. There's another guy, though, called Jason. And he, he had a different plan. He didn't tie ropes or anything like that. He invited his mate Orpheus onto the boat. And Orpheus was the best musician in the land. And he just said to him, look, whenever these sirens sing, I want you to play a sweeter song. And this song will captivate our hearts more than they ever will. And we'll sail right past. That is living by the Spirit. It's a different way of life. So Romans 6 talks about the difference living under the law with the bounds and ropes tying us up in the rules. Or living by grace, living by the Spirit, living with the sweeter song going on. That's the context coming into our elephant in the room. Okay, Romans 7, this is our, um, <clears throat> our chapter that I want us to delve into a little bit. You'll see in your notes a printout of Romans 7, verses 7 to 24. I've got some highlighters here. Could you, I've got like 40 of them, so most of you will have one. Some might need to go one between two. Could you just um, pass them around? And when you've got one, what I would like you to do, on the printout that you've got, I would like you to highlight any examples you see of these words. Okay, You might want to write these words down. Grace, faith, spirit, Jesus Christ. Because these are the big themes of Romans, aren't they? You heard about Romans last week. The grace of God, faith, spirit, Jesus Christ. Those five words. Anytime you see them in that chapter... Just highlight them. All right, how are we feeling about that? Do we think we've done it? What I would like you to do now is swap highlighters with somebody next to you so you've got a different colour. 
And then in your new colour, I would like you to highlight these words. So this is your second set of words. Law, flesh, sin, death. Law, flesh, sin, death. Okay, how are we getting on with that second one? Are most of us, most of the way there? Do you see the difference? Do you see the big difference between those two exercises? So, if Romans is about living the gospel way, being saved by Christ, by his grace, through faith, having the Holy Spirit in you, living by the Spirit... You see, that's not what Romans 7 is about, is it? Those words don't come up. But that's in contrast with a life lived under the law. That's the life that Paul lived before he became a Christian. He was a legalist. He lived by the the law. And flesh seized upon the law. And so sin entered. He lived in sin. And it led to death. That is what the chapter is about. So when we see a verse, which people often talk about, to deny or downplay the possibility of change in a Christian. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's not a verse that's talking about Christians at all. That's a verse that's talking about what it is like to live under the law. You have this idea, you have this standard, I want to live this way, but there's no power to get you there. In fact, a question is raised in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Ever feel that way? Well, there's an answer to the question in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 8 then speaks into it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 7 is all about the law of sin and death. But now the law of the Spirit in Christ has set you free from that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It couldn't do it. It couldn't make change happen in you. God has done it. But sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I started this section by saying that change is possible. I would now like to retract that and make a slightly stronger statement. Change is inevitable if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit at work in you will bring about change in your life. I think before we move on, I'll, I'll stop and see if anyone would like to ask any questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, just to supplement, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians that we have read, yep. uh, first chapter mm-hmm. uh, 8, so yep. um, it's said that uh, Jesus helps us to be uh, unrepressible. Sorry? Uh, Yep. Uh, yeah, blameless maybe. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Any, any more comments, questions? So do you want to press on? Cool, let's press on then. Um, 
How does change happen? So saying that change is possible, change is inevitable, but how does change come about? Well, there are three ways that we might talk about sanctification, um, different time periods. So we could talk about positional sanctification. So at the start of Corinthians, it says those who have been sanctified. So when we are saved, there's a sense, sanctified literally means set apart. We are set apart for God at that moment. Positionally, we're sanctified then. You could talk progressive sanctification, so this happens in the present tense. It happens over the course of our life. That's most of what we're talking about right now. And then perfect sanctification, so that's in the future tense. We will be sanctified fully when Jesus returns. If you turn to a verse like 1 John, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, just turn there and you will see all three of them in the one verse. So it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's the positional sanctification. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's the future tense, the perfect sanctification, because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. That is the progressive sanctification in the present tense, as he is pure. So the first and third of those types, uh, that's entirely God. The one we cooperate in is the progressive sanctification that happens right now. What are some of the key battlegrounds for our sanctification? I think most of us, when we start to think of it, the first thing that comes to our mind are the actions that we do. So what are the things that we do day by day that we should stop doing or that we should start doing? That might be the first area of sanctification that we think of. But it isn't only about what we do. What we say is important as well. It's our words, our thoughts. You know, sometimes, say like um, the classic example of someone cuts me up on the road, I might occasionally be sanctified enough not to say out loud what I'm thinking, but the thoughts still need sanctifying as well. So yeah, there's the battleground of maybe what we're thinking in certain moments, in certain situations. That needs to change. Another one though, and I've distinguished it from thoughts, even though it's similar, is our internal narrative. So the thoughts might be what we think in a moment, but what story do we keep telling ourselves? What, what do we fundamentally believe about ourselves, about the world, about uh, how we interact with it? What, what narrative keeps going over and over again? That's a sanctification battleground. Our feelings, our desires, our identity, who we are in the world. Let's speak a bit more practically. How does it happen? What, what's God's part in it and how can we cooperate? Right, here's, here's the thing for you to do on your tables. Think about Jesus' disciples. Between the moment that he first called them to follow him and when he died on the cross. So you've got about three years there. How much sanctification do you see in them over those three years? And why do you think that is? Okay, let's bring it in. I'd be curious to hear some answers to this one. How much growth, how much sanctification do you think we see in them over that time? Not much. Not much. I don't see much at all. You know, you read them, you read the stories near the start, they seem quite humble, they seem ready to learn and listen to Jesus. Near the end, they seem all over the place. They're 
They're a mess. They're fighting for the, the seats at his right and left. They're, they're denying knowing him. They're, like, they're an absolute joke three years in. Um, and it seems like nothing's happened. It seems like they're not getting sanctified at all. Now, do you think that is actually the case, that they're not getting sanctified? No, we, we, obviously that isn't the case. Sanctification is happening. But when I read through their stories, it encourages me uh, in a lot of ways. But what it shows me is that sanctification can be messy. It's not a linear progression from that one thing to the next to the next. Actually, over those three years, what happened is things that were always part of them, that were kind of core to who they were, Jesus is exposing them to situations that bring those things to the fore, that bring them to the light. So it looks like their lives are a bit more messy. Now, those things were always in there, but now they're being brought out and Jesus can deal with them and help them work through those things and grow through them. Sometimes in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, we need to be ready for a journey of sanctification that looks like an up and down journey. And actually, through the valleys, growth can happen. We need to recognise that. What were the things that Jesus did that helped them to grow? Because there were some key things that Jesus did that we can look at them sort of years after and see the growth definitely did happen. I mean, look at your own life. Ten years ago, where were you? You might not see growth day by day, but look where you were, look where you are now. Growth happened. Same for the disciples. I picked out three things that Jesus did. Proximity, learning, and opportunity. So first one, proximity. He called them to himself. It says, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So the first thing is he called them to be with him. They saw him up close. They didn't just read about what he did. They didn't just hear stories about what he did. They saw what he did. They saw how he responded to different situations. They were in proximity with him. They saw how he responded to them. Sanctification at a distance doesn't work. If you think you will grow closer to God, grow more mature in your relationship with God on your own, I think you're missing a trick. You're missing one of the key ingredients that will help you to grow. Now that's not to say things that we do on our own don't play a part, but it's through doing it in our relationship with other people. Proximity to Jesus through the spiritual disciplines, proximity to one another through community are so important. Just going to get you to read some more verses on your tables. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. This is like a, a classic passage about sanctification, maturity, about living the Christian life. But just go through it and pick out on each item how it's directed to community rather than individual life. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Do you see how that works uh, as you read it? He doesn't just say, don't lie. He says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. It's in community that this value of truth is being expressed. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's saying, with each other, be reconciled. If you're angry with someone, make it right. Give an opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. That sounds like an individual instruction, doesn't it? Don't go and rob stuff. 
But he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is a community instruction. Now, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up your in community. Your, your speech should be building up one another, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you along with all malice, but be kind to one another. It's about how the way we it's about how we treat one another in community, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. <clears throat> it's easy to look like you've got a mature faith when you're on your own. But it's when you're butting up against other people. It's in relationships when someone does something and it jars you a certain way. And it's not how you would want to do things. And through the way we relate to other people, that's the real crucible that our maturity is shown and that it's developed. Jesus put the disciples in proximity with himself and with each other. Second piece then, proximity, was learning. So they followed him around and Jesus taught in every town and village. And he was probably teaching very similar messages in all of the places. It's like they heard the Jesus Greatest Hits sermon playlist like 50 times. They would have heard his key messages over and over again and they would have gone in. And when they didn't, say like some of the parables, they got the behind the scenes content. They got the extra like explanations. So when I said this, here's what I meant. Here's what I was getting at. When they were struggling with things, they like they struggled with prayer. So they said, teach us how to pray, and they could learn how to do it from Jesus. Then in Acts, when they're, uh, they're preaching the gospel, everyone's astonished, and they're like, the only explanation, these uneducated men, they're so good in their preaching, they must have been with Jesus. They saw how much they had learned from him. So you need to learn if you're going to grow. Now, you're here at School of Theology on a Saturday morning, so you already know this. This is a good thing. Take whatever learning opportunities you can get. Listen to sermons online. Yeah, at CCM, we have like six every Sunday. When the Withenshaw site launches, that'll be seven. That'll be a sermon a day. What could be better? Uh, listen, <laughs> listen to other podcasts, read books, YouTube channels. I do think, though, the best kind of learning is the learning in community. So, I, I mean, one thing that I do, I've been uh, reading through over the last year or so, uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book. But I'm not just reading a chapter on my own. I'm reading it with someone. We're meeting up. We're talking about it. That kind of learning sharpens me than if I just read the chapter on my own. I read another book a, a, a while back about kind of the, the spiritual realm and kind of some, some stuff that's going on with angels and things like that. But another guy, uh, my site of the church, has read the same book. We've gained a lot more by talking to each other about it. So learn in community and ultimately learn the Bible. Get to know it really, really well. So proximity, learning, and then the third thing Jesus gave them was opportunity. So within weeks, months maybe, of following him, they were out doing what he was doing. He'd sent them two by two to the towns and villages to preach, to heal, to cast out evil spirits. He gave them opportunities and then gathered them back in for feedback. <clears throat> I remember early on when I was a Christian, I was given lots of opportunities to serve, to get involved, to do things. And it's been so formative for me. Obviously, you're not fully in control of what opportunities you're offered to do stuff. But whenever you do get offered an opportunity, take it. If your community group leader offers you the chance to lead a study one week, 
lead the study. If you're given the opportunity to uh, run an outreach, run it, you know, and be a bit pushy. You know, I, I don't mind as someone who's uh, a site leader. I'm sure other leaders feel the same way. If someone's coming to me saying, I'd like to do stuff, okay? I much prefer that to someone who's sitting there reluctant to do stuff. Take, take opportunities and ask for opportunities. And figure out what kind of opportunities are the right ones to go after. Look at what your spiritual gifts are. Look at what things you're passionate about. Maybe there are prophetic words that you've been given at various points that you want to align yourself with. Look at what the needs are. I can see a gaping need over here. Give me an opportunity to do something about it. So there's some of the ways that Jesus helped them grow in their sanctification. I'm just going to look at some of the things that we can do to help our sanctification. So Tim Chester, in his book, We Can Change, by the way, that is the best book I've ever read on this topic. If you want a nice, accessible book about sanctification and how we can do it, Tim Chester, We Can Change, would be my top recommendation. He talks about the idea of sowing to the Spirit. He says, sowing to the Spirit means saying yes to whatever strengthens our Spirit-inspired desires. He lists seven ways we can do that. First one is the Bible. So we can devote time to the Bible because the Bible will reveal God to us. The Bible also reveals ourselves to us. It shows us things that are going on within us. In Hebrews 4, it says that the word of God penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It helps as we face things in life. If we're struggling with anxiety, worry, fear, loss, the Bible has things to say that speak into those places. The Bible helps mould us not to give in to temptation. In Psalm 119, verse 10, David says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Chris Wright says, The more we instill the Bible into our heart, mind, soul and bloodstream, the harder we will find it to sin comfortably. The Bible enlivens our conscience and drives us back to God in repentance and a longing to live as it pleases him. Here are four ways then you can push into the Bible. Firstly, read it regularly. So I don't know if you're the kind of person who uses a Bible reading plan. I find it helpful to have a plan day by day. This is what I'm going to read and read those things. Be reading it on a regular basis. Secondly, study it. Be intentional. As well as a day by day reading, every now and then, take a bit of it and go on a deep dive study. Get commentaries. Look at kind of word links. Do some deeper work with parts of it. Really get to grips with what it's saying. Third one would be Bible meditation. You know, have a bit of the Bible and just let it churn over in your head for a week, a month, however long it needs to be. I know someone who, who just loves Romans chapter 12 and reads it every day and then reads another bit of the Bible as well. And he's just living in that bit of scripture. I think Jesus did this actually. When he went out in the wilderness and was tempted, all the responses he gave were from scripture and they were all from Deuteronomy chapters 6, 7 or 8. So he had like three chapters and it's like he was living in those chapters in the wilderness and then when the temptations was coming, he was right there with the antidote. And then Bible memorization is something I'd commend as well. If that psalm says, I've hidden your word in my heart, the way we do that is remember some verses, cast them to memory if you can, then you'll have them, you'll be equipped with them in any circumstance. So firstly, the Bible. Secondly, prayer. Let's devote ourselves to prayer. James 4 verse 8 says, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. 
Now, I think very few people find prayer easy, and I'll tell you why I think that. Most times I hear a sermon on prayer, the person who is preaching starts by saying, I must confess, prayer is something that I don't find easy. It feels like a lot of people seem ready to confess a struggle with prayer. Now, let's be real about that then. If a lot of us struggle with prayer, so be it. Let's fight past that struggle. It's important enough that we do so. Because when we pray, when we spend time with God, what does that do to our personal holiness? It helps us, doesn't it? Our demeanour changes, our heads are lifted. Things are drawn to our attention in our lives that we can start to rectify and make positive changes. J.C. Ryle says, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. Diligence in prayer is the secret of eminent holiness. We should cultivate prayer in our lives. We should do so with some intentional times, day by day, setting some time aside to go into prayer. Some people like to pray through lists. Some people like to write their prayers down. Find how praying works for you. For me, it's prayer walks. Going and walking and praying is the way I really delve into this. As well as the intentional, there should be the instinctive, that moment by moment as we're going on, we're communicating with God. But some people would only want one or the other. I've heard people say, I don't need an intentional time. I want to pray all the time. But when you say that, really what you end up doing is letting it just fizzle out and not really doing it. You need both. The instinctive in the moment and the intentional time for it. Third way we can sow to the Spirit is community. We talked about this in the proximity section, but sanctification is a team sport. It's something that we do together. The Bible talks about as iron sharpens iron, so one person will sharpen another. Think of like a log that's burning. Okay, You set this log on fire. If it's on its own, eventually the flames will just dwindle down. But if you put that log on a pile of other logs that are all burning, that's a lot less likely to happen because the fire from one log will reinforce the fire of the others. Together, they burn better. It's the same for us in community. Your church, your site is a place to bring your struggles. It's a place to be encouraged by the work of God in other people. It's a place to pull yourself out. It's a place to receive what you need and be filled up again. I couldn't emphasize strongly enough, get into community. Be at church on Sundays. Don't be the sort of person who's only around one week in three. Be at church most weeks. It is good for you. Be at your midweek group. If you're not in a midweek group, join a midweek group and get along to it most weeks. Intentionally cultivate relationships where you're meeting up with people and can spur each other on in your walk with God. Fourth way that we can sow to the Spirit is worship. Worship takes us right into the arena of sanctification in our hearts. When Jesus was teaching people to be generous, he says you cannot serve both God and money. He made it into a worship issue, not just a a wallet issue. Actually, the same is true for most areas of our lives we want to grow in. There's something driving whatever the thing is that we're putting above God. It's a worship thing. Tim Chester says when we worship God, we're reminding ourselves that God is bigger and better than anything that sin offers. Worship isn't just an affirmation that God is good. It's an affirmation that God is better. God is better than whatever else it is we are struggling with. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning, when we worship, let's rethink what is happening. Together, we are declaring God is better than anything else. And whatever struggles we're bringing into the room, that worship is a prophetic statement of God's supremacy. 
That's also the thing about the communion table. Communion is a means of grace where we come. And some of the old liturgies say we feed on Christ in our hearts with thanksgiving. It strengthens us for the fight as we break bread together. Fifth way we serve to the Spirit then is service, which is a bit of an interesting one. Because sometimes we think serving is what happens after we've been sanctified. It's not. Serving is one of the ways God changes us. We often think of service as the fruit or sign of change, according to Tim Chester, but it's also a means of grace that God uses to change us. Isaiah uh, talks about how when we spend ourselves for the needy, then the light will rise in our darkness. We serve, we give of ourselves, and then a light rises in us. It is good for us when we serve. It helps our sanctification. How are you serving? It might be in the church, it might be in other areas. How are you serving? What are you doing? I would say to you, when life gets hard, when it feels like everything's pressing in, and when you're struggling, that isn't a good time to withdraw from serving. Actually, the serving then will start to untangle whatever's going on. And I'd say the same for giving as well. That isn't a moment to stop giving. Actually, it's at those times you need your heart disentangled from whatever you've put before God. Serving and giving are great ways to do that. Sixth way we sow to the Spirit is suffering. So let me just read uh, the first, well, verses two to four of James. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trials of various kinds are what produces the faith, the steadfastness that leads you to be perfect and complete. Now, would we choose suffering? Probably not. But when suffering comes, we can choose how we respond to it. And we can recognise that it's something that God frequently will use for our sanctification. Again, Tim Chester, he says, suffering always presents us with a choice. We can get frustrated, angry, bitter or despondent as our desire for control, success, love or health gets threatened. Or we can take hold of God in a new way, finding our joy in him and comfort in his promises. And then the final way he suggests we can sow to the Spirit is hope. Now hope was one of the big emphases of Christians in centuries past that we've kind of lost a bit today. We don't talk about the future as much as Christians used to do. Later in the year we'll have a session all about eschatology and the future that will help with the theoretical stuff. The Bible talks about a heavenly hope and particularly a new creation. Hope whatever's wrong in the world will be put right. And the New Testament authors and Christian authors of the past were strongly emphasising this. We see it at the start of the book of Colossians. Let me just read from, sorry, the start of Colossians 3. This is um, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's by setting your mind on things above that you put to death the things on earth. John Maxwell says, where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. In the Bible, there is an incredible hope for the future. So, change. It's necessary. We all need to change. We all need to look more like God. 
Change is possible. Change is inevitable. As you walk with Jesus, you will change and you will reflect his glory more and more. We have three minutes left. I'd like you to use them on your tables to pray for one another as you grow more like Jesus.